Previously on Who Killed Amy Mahalovic. Amy was last seen on Friday afternoon at this Bay Village shopping center. It's right across the street from the police department. She had gone into Baskin Robbins for some ice cream with her friends and then later was seen talking with a man. Amy's abductor has been described as a white male, 35 to 45 years old, approximately 5'8", and wearing glasses. Then there was the phone caller who tricked Amy into meeting him. He had apparently tried it before. And part of the con involved luring Amy to the Bay Village shopping plaza. A phone call to Amy led her to believe the suspect was a friend of the family who wanted to buy her mom a surprise gift to celebrate a job promotion. Bay Village is a quiet community of 18,000 people. Lieutenant Wilson says this kind of crime is rare. Well, I've been here 23 years and it hasn't happened. Well, I think that there was a familiarity. Uh, he was familiar with Amy. He knew how to contact her. He knew information about Amy's mother. I've always taught them the rules. You never go with anyone anywhere, but that's how we got through her, through her soft heart. She wanted to do something for Mom, and it was supposed to be kept a secret. One of Amy's friends reportedly told police that Amy said she was to meet someone who claimed to be a friend of the family to go buy her mother a surprise gift. The FBI's William Brannon says he may still be in the area, carefully watching the investigation. And the best way to recognize him is a change of character. Brandon says the kidnapper may have become anxious, lost sleep or weight, and may drink heavily or turn to drugs. Uh, in this case, the victim does not know uh, at this point that she or he is a victim. I, I just turned 22 when I was hired. Really? You know, you gotta be 21. Right. I had just turned 22, so I was just about a year uh, from the minimum. So yeah, I've been here a long time, but I'm still relatively young. Here, of course, Amy's abduction was accomplished as a part of a ruse. When that person comes forward and identifies an individual, obviously that ramps up all the other pieces of looking at that person's history, which creates new clues and new information, and you're able to tie it together better. Potentially other cases. Right. But when you have tens of thousands of people uh, as people named as possible suspect, that's very difficult to deal with. Hello and welcome to this week's very special episode of Who Killed Amy Mahalovic. I am your host, Bill Huffman, and on this week's episode, I will be concluding my conversation with the Chief of Bay Village Police, Mark Spetzel. And if you recall, he is the officer who spoke to Amy's class on the day that she disappeared way back when on October 27, 1989. In this interview, we discuss some of the ways that this case could be solved, how technology may help the case, and how important it is for the public to step forward if they have any information on who killed Amy Mahalovic. But during our interview, I did find out what the future may hold for Chief Mark Spetzel when he does have to retire, and what his involvement will be in the Amy Mahalovic case going forward. And anybody who has had interest in this case will know that having a guy like Chief Spetzel on your side is how this case will be solved. So I hope you enjoyed the rest of our conversation. And again, if you know anything about who killed Amy Mahalovic, please don't hesitate to call 440-871-1234. All the different people working together, I just can't believe that the case has not been solved. Yeah, it goes back to that frustration. Again, it's got a lot of sharp people, a lot of intelligent people, a lot of experienced people have worked on this case. Some of the most intelligent people in the history of the, yeah. you know, the FBI. Yeah. And, and We've had the case reviewed several times by both the FBI and the National Center for Missing and Exploited. The idea behind that is to give people who really have no familiarity with the case 
present them with the facts, present them with case information, and have them try to generate new ideas or maybe things that we, it was so obvious we weren't seeing it kind of uh, thoughts. And, and that's been done several times. And we'll probably do it again um, because there's a lot of value in that in saying, well, what did you think about this? And, and often we can answer, yes, of course we did. But every once in a while, they come up with something unique that we haven't thought of before, or a different perspective on things that we, we, we didn't have. And, and that's extremely valuable. Yeah, that's, that's very important, especially, I mean, you guys are so close to the Cleveland office. Mm-hmm. And you have, I mean, they, a lot of agents live in the city. Live up, yeah, they live around and here. It's got to be something that bugs them. I know I've been on their website. It's on the front page mm-hmm. still. I did not know that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't I mean, surprise there's, me. There's still, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I believe it's the the missing poster that you have in the corner, but yeah. uh, they they have, you know, you have information on this case. Yeah, it's it's wild. I mean, yeah. it's like their number one. And of course, through the media, the media has, has thankfully kept this uh, case in in the forefront for us. And obviously, with the 30th anniversary, you're going to see a lot more media attention. But like I said, I think that's an important part of this case resolution is someone from the public coming forward with some type of information. And we're still hopeful for that. Um, it's going to be difficult to solve it without the public's assistance. I really believe that. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I've given sometimes a bad rap to the, the anniversary coverage of certain things, but in, you're right. I mean, it does present another opportunity to get the story mm-hmm. back out in the spotlight. Yeah. And I here I am, you know. <laughs> Thir- you at, are, the thir- at the 30th 30 year anniversary, anniversary. right, right. <laughs> uh, doing exactly that, uh, discussing the yeah. anniversary of a horrible thing. I, I wish they could come up with like a better. Yeah, anniversary sounds like it should be a celebration. <laughs> it's certainly not. And and you, you know, if you talk to Mark and Jason Mahalovic, you know, those poor guys have had to live with this for 30 years, and you know, they deserve some closure in this. And that's really what the driving force behind continuing to to work as hard as we do to solve it is. Yeah, I mean, from my contact and my, you know, my association with Mark and what I've experienced with him and his relationship with Jason, it seems like they have a good good relationship yeah. that lives in the area. So, I mean, I, I don't know how well you could adjust. I think it's got to be the worst thing you could ever imagine. Yeah, I, again, I, not in that position, I don't know, but I can only imagine. It's very yeah, difficult. and so, I mean, you put on a... You just kind of put on a happy face and go forward, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Uh, now, as far as closure for the city, I mean, I'm from Rocky River. For whole, I mean, for the whole state, for the Northeast Ohio. Sure. I mean, resolution on this case would be. I mean, well, we're be, talking about it would be it would be international news. It'd be it'd be big, obviously, and and not it's not about accolades. It's not about anything. Mm-hmm. That it's all about first of all holding the person accountable that did this, uh, and then providing closure for for the family first, you know, for them, and and then the community, the wider community, the local community, the wider community who have lived with this and have lived with the you know the anniversary coverage and know what happened and. Knowing there's somebody out there that that did this that that is unnamed, and I think everybody needs that that kind of closure. Yeah, I, and I think a lot of the interest lies on who mm-hmm. this person is, and if this person is somebody that people, right. people know. Sure. And well, again, the bottom line is somebody knows them, right? Somebody knows them, and that's the people we want to hear from is the ones that think they know them. Yeah, and 
as far as working 30 years on the case, do you think this is somebody that could just easily blend in with the public? Um, I think to an extent, but I think there's going to be behaviors that probably will manifest itself over time. Again, this is a person that um, feels probably more comfortable around children than they would adults, yet can maintain an adult relationship as an outward appearance, yet might have more difficulty with, you know, um, closer relationships with adults. So, um, and, and they certainly have an interest in children. And, and that always, in some form or fashion, comes out and is recognized by people. Often, however, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, that person was arrested for, you know, child porn. I kind of suspected that, you know. But they never say anything until after the fact. And then they're like, oh, now I'm putting it together. This kind of makes sense. So what we're asking people to do is kind of put that together now for us. You know, what, what do you think makes sense about this person's possible relationship to our case? And let us know about it. Let us check into it. Yeah, so basically anybody with like an extreme interest in children is obviously something That's, that you would definitely look into. Yeah. Yep. Now, in our past interviews, you've talked about how you don't believe you've interviewed the person that committed this crime. Well, I mean, you know, you never say never. Uh, but again, we, we've interviewed so many people. Is, is there a possibility in the thousands and thousands of names the person has been talked to? Could be, but it would probably be that you know, it was one of those more tenuous connections to the case. And you're just, you know, there's nothing there uh, that you can really grab onto now. Um, because certainly we've had suspects we've looked at where, you know, there's a lot of um, little pieces that seem to add up and make you think, wow, this could be the guy, right? And, and they realize you do continue investigation, you realize, no, it's not the one. That's frustrating, obviously, too. But at the same time, you're, you're, you're identifying an innocent person. That's important. So it does. It all has value. Um, have you ever had a guy that you were pursuing, or that you thought, "Oh man, this is this." Feels, well, I think that's happened. Right. I think that's happened many times. Sure, okay. uh, because the more circumstances that line up with our facts, the, the stronger the suspect. Right. Now, keep in mind, having said that, uh, in this type of crime, which is not a, it's not a domestic violence type case where you've got an isolated population. This is a crime that occurred out in the community a stranger abduction uh, type of situation. So your pool of candidates is, is very large. Um, and so a lot of people come to us by tips or leads, right? And so when you think about that, there's a lot of people out there that have circumstances that could fit. You know, you may have called, if you were old enough, you may be called off work that day because you were sick. Well, somebody doesn't like you or somebody thinks you look like the composite drawing. And oh, by the way, he called off sick that day. He wasn't at work. Now, suddenly that becomes a connection, right? could be a, an innocent connection, as you can imagine, but it's a connection. And those are things we look at. So the more of those that add up, the more intriguing a, a, a person becomes as a suspect. Um, and sometimes you, and again, I've said this before, unless you can have a 100% alibi that independent people unknown to you identify you in this location at this time when the crime happened, that's really about the best way to eliminate a suspect. That can't always happen. So you're using circumstantial evidence to say, yeah, this all fits, but man, this this is not working out, or this doesn't look good, or you know, we've got this information here, and we learned this. So I don't, I, this is not the guy. Can you say it 100 percent? No, but you you come pretty close often. Now, with that being said, there's been a few names named in the media, and I'm not going to name them. Yeah, but. In regards to those, those people have been vetted 
Yeah, any name you may, and again, it's unfortunate that names come out in the media. That should not happen. But if you've heard about names, then they're in the public. We certainly are aware of them, far more than the public would be aware of them. And um, and, and we've done um, a ton of work on a lot of people to make sure that we're not missing something, put it that way. So you've like really dug in oh, there's anybody yep, that's absolutely. come up in the yeah. in the last twenty years yep. or so. Yep. Now yep. <clears throat> the we've talked before about the Robert Ressler book and the you know, how he had profiled and thought it was William Strunak and mm-hmm. We can rule him out, though, right? Yeah, you know, again, as best that we can, <clears throat> there was an extensive investigation done on all people that were identified, right? So rest assured that if we thought that an individual was the person, and as I sit here today, I don't think I have a name in my files, a name in my head. It's like, that's the person we just need to get the further evidence. Nobody like that exists in our mind right now. But anybody that came up as a, a suspect or through leads has been thoroughly vetted out. And had they still been a suspect, we'd still be working that. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have set it aside. Having said that, there's always a chance that new information is provided. We look back at cases. We do that often. People will call with somebody we've already looked at with maybe new information. So we'll go back and look at it, make sure, you know, does this fit in? Is it contrary to something we learned that we used to maybe set them aside? Uh, you know, we always will do that. Um, but as far as, as that individual goes, we feel very comfortable he, he didn't have any involvement. Yeah, it was just one of those situations where, you know, he fit the profile, meaning that he, he, he volunteered. And, you know, a lot of people volunteered. A lot of people volunteered. A lot of people fit the, uh, the profile from back then. And, uh, you know. And the profile picture. Sure. And again, you know, to, to revisit that very quickly, you yeah. know, that, those composite drawings were done by a couple of kids. Not they weren't done, but they were by their memory, right? And and they saw this person for a very short period of time, with no reason to take notice of that recollection because it wasn't a dynamic situation where people are fighting and screaming. Amy's not yelling and screaming, "Don't touch me, get away!" You know that that didn't happen. So they they were just going through their day, happened to look over, see Amy talking with a guy, glanced at him and looked away, and and that's their recollection of the person who abducted. Now, that has value because it gives us a general description, but as far as composite drawings, which is all we had at the time, so that's why it was put out, um, you can't say that the person is going to look exactly like that. So we we ask people, kind of disregard that. Don't rule somebody out because they don't look exactly like that. And go with kind of the facts and the behavior. That's really more important. We know it's probably, based upon the description, the consistencies, it's probably a white male, you know, around five nine ish, uh, probably twenty five to thirty five years of age, with with almost like a full head of hair that goes down over the forehead. You know, that was a those consistent things tell us that's probably accurate. But beyond that, as far as the shape of the jaw and the eyes and things like that, bone structure. I mean, they were twenty five feet away or more, and and so that is difficult at best. But you know, they're probably coming up with, um, you know, what they really honestly feel is what the guy looked like. And we don't doubt that for a second. But anybody knows eyewitnesses are probably the least reliable evidence. So when you think about that, you have to put it all in perspective and say, well, yeah, it's probably generally like this, but it doesn't mean it's exactly like this. Now, that they were the only witnesses, right? 
They were the only witnesses there that day that saw Amy with this individual. Yep. Okay, because I know that there's been some talk in the media or on the internet about uh-huh. uh, about the auto mechanic that mm-hmm. supposedly saw it. And on that note, let's take a break and hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. Having dealt with anxiety and depression for most of my life, I know a thing or two about the importance of mental health. So today I'm pleased to tell you about a great company. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. And now you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. With over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, BetterHelp is there for you. If you're not happy with any of your counselors for any reason at any time, you can get a new one for no additional charge. They even have apps for your computer or smartphone. Whether you're suffering from depression, anger, stress, anxiety, LGBT matters, or self-esteem issues, they have a licensed professional counselor for you. And everything you share is confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash WHO. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash WHO. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. He didn't see anything? No, he did not see anything, uh, you know... and I think people honestly want to help is what a lot of this comes down to. Uh, he We talked with him the day after or, or within days of the abduction because obviously his, this auto mechanic was on the corner of Dover and Wolf Road, which is adjacent to the shopping center. So he's within several hundred feet of where this crime occurred. Um, so, and, and, you know, good guy, very observant. So he told us what he observed that day, which was virtually nothing. And then he gets information and he starts thinking, well, maybe I did see something. And he comes in and, and tells us a different story, but it didn't match up with his original story. So is, is the story that he provided days after the accurate one or the one he provided 20 years later? You know, you, you have to look at these things. And I don't think there's any ill will. I think it's just him trying to be helpful 
putting information provided to him into context and coming up with something that you know really isn't accurate. Yeah, and that happens with all witnesses. Over time, perceptions change, memories change, which is another difficulty in a thirty-year-old case. Obviously, over time, your perception of an event is altered by your interaction with people and how you tell the story and how what their reactions are. And it just, I don't want to say a tall tale getting larger or fish story, but you know, this is kind of the thing. And so initial recollections and those revisited shortly after the crime are often the best. And that's why we always go back to the original fact patterns and, and then not somebody who has a change of heart 20 years later, you have to, it can happen, but you have to look at that with, with suspect eyes. You can't just assume that, well, they were wrong on days after they're right now, 20 years later, or 30 years later, whatever it is. Some things need to be taken with a grain of salt. Right. But you, you do, you also have to take and, and listen to that too, because there could be some information that they forgot or, or something that spurred a memory that adds to what they already told you. So we, we listen to that. Absolutely. Cause that can happen too. Have you guys gone back and talked to the people that, I mean, I'm sure you have, uh, at least during the time, the the witnesses that were told about the meeting. Oh yes, yes. So there was there were several other. Uh, I mean, I'm just thinking about the like perceptions change over years, mm-hmm. and just if that is something that they, you know, again, those were 10, 11 year olds at the time that that provided us that information, and they provided that within days of the abduction. Uh, one the same night one the next day, and then several days afterwards. So, again, um, their recollections are pretty good. They were consistent, even though they were independent, and, and they some heard it directly from Amy, some heard Amy telling people. And the, the key is is that the basic facts were consistent throughout. Even though they didn't talk to each other and you know exchange ideas or stories, their stories were consistent. So we feel very comfortable with that story, which is basically that... Amy received a call from a guy who wanted to take her shopping and and, uh, buy a gift for her mother, uh, go to the mall because mom had received a promotion and spent about $45. That seems to be a pretty consistent story. So we believe that to be accurate. So those were two different actual people. It wasn't like they were sitting there together at lunch. They're they're independent stories of the same fact pattern. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the people that saw... Amy with the individual, have they come back? Like, have you interviewed them in the last? We we've talked with them. We don't really interview them. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, no, but we've we've spoken with them. Uh, they're great people, by the way. It's amazing when you watch young people grow up from that age, and even though they were kind of involved in this trauma, you know, you don't know how it affects people. Right. Uh, but both are are really both witnesses that we're talking about. Really, just good people. Just great, great people. And they grow grown up to be successful, and you always like to see that. That's great, you know. But yeah, we've talked we'll talk with them in the past, but yeah. we don't we don't necessarily re-interview them because again, their their recollection then is the best. And anybody who tells you who witnessed anything like that, they'll tell you I, I whatever I told you is what happened, you know, or or yeah, that's what I remember. And you know, often if you sit down and you're you're reliving a past event, you're going to want to see what did I say back then. I need something to prompt my memory. Um, so really, again, that goes back to that original memory, original conversation, original statement taken is, is usually the best. Yeah, I mean, you got to figure that that's the freshest thing in their memory. Correct. And, you know, anything else after that can mm-hmm. be easily yeah. malleable. 
sure. over time the, uh, and the exposure and hearing different things. And you, you start to second guess yourself when you hear people say things. Um, so yeah, you guys, you just got to take that into account. So we're, so we're at 30 years and you've been working for the department for almost 35. Yeah. You know, coming up on 34 years in December. Yep. And, uh, I don't know. you want to mention <laughs> mm-hmm. it? Yeah. So I'll be, I'll be retiring, uh, in, in the spring of, of 2020. Uh, I will have, have, uh, done 34 and a half years by then. And, um, so I'll be walking away from this job. I'll, I'll continue to work. Uh, but, um, one of the things that, you know, I'd be hopeful is if I can come back and work this on a part-time basis and, and that can be worked out through the city, that's something I would enjoy doing because as police chief, you just don't have that daily contact with the case, you know, and it was, it was difficult to leave the, the detective bureau and, and move to this position knowing that I wasn't going to be hands-on with the case anymore. Um, but I've got great detectives that do great work with it. And, of course, Phil Torsney working on the FBI. So I'm not worried about the fact that things aren't getting done. I'm, I, I just want to be involved. You know, like anybody, they, they want to, you want to be involved. And having been involved in the past and having to walk away is difficult. So if I can have a chance to come back in and work in on a more intimate basis, I'd certainly want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to a number of people, and they've actually brought that to my attention mm-hmm. as far as if you ever did retire, if that was something... That you, I mean, you would be like the best person to have on that force, in my in my in my opinion, um, and in many other people's opinions. Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, complete. That's so admirable. Yeah, and, and and it's nothing. I don't think personal reasons. I've just you know over time, over thirty years, got to know Mark Mahalik very well, and I feel for the guy. And I just think there has to be a resolution. And if I can help be a part of that, then I want to be a part of it. And are you, I mean, we can keep this off the record or not, but are you going to be staying in the Cleveland area? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not going anywhere. I'm a born and raised uh, Northeast Ohio person. I'm not going anywhere. Oh, you right know, we'll, we'll travel, but, you know, yeah. I love this area. I love the people. i got family here. I'm not going anywhere. Can we revisit real quick? You mentioned in one of our interviews a circumstantial murder case that you guys prosecuted back in 2000. Hmm. What was the What was the case? Again. The case was uh, um, Bobby Cutler, who was an employee owner of Western Roofing. Um, he had been robbed at his place of business in Cleveland uh, sometime, and the memory's going to be a little fuzzy here, but at least a year earlier, he had been robbed at his place of business uh, by somebody who walked into the business with a handgun, pistol whipped him, and stole some cash. That person at the time told him um, that if he ever told anybody about the crime, he'd come back and kill him and kill his family, you know, and that's probably said, not often, but it's said during certain crimes. So he didn't think anything of it. He reported the crime to Cleveland Police Department, gave a description, there was, a, there was some investigation. Over time, they were able to identify um, a person that probably uh, was involved in that, and a warrant was issued for this individual. Um, and then in the Crime Stoppers flyers that go out, uh, with all the suspect names and their crimes and their, that the fact that they're wanted, that made it to a, a business in Cleveland, and that that business employed a person there who happened to be the suspect's girlfriend, and noted, you know, why is he in here? And goes home and confronts her boyfriend and says, well, why why does it say here you were involved in an armed robbery? You know, what's that all about? He said, oh, that's a case of mistaken identity. 
Well, within 24 hours of that, he lured Bobby Cutler, the original victim, out to Bay Village and executed him. And that's what we found. We, we, we got called to a house here on Lake Road by Cahoon Park in which a uh, body was found. He had trauma to his head. His truck was parked in the driveway, his work truck. And he had a little piece of paper like those while you were out pink notes that you would write messages on for people. One of those in his hands with uh, uh, a name and a phone number. And that's it. No physical evidence other than footprints in the snow, which were all matted down because there was other footprints around the area. But it appeared as though he had arrived at that house, walked around the back of the house, came back around towards his, his truck, and he was found dead on the side of the house. Uh, turns out he was shot three times in the back of the head. And that's all we had. And so we started uh, obviously working the case and through mainly phone records, we were able to identify, well, going back, obviously we were like, well, who'd want this person dead, right? So that's the, the, the genesis of the investigation. And we identified this, this person, his name was Timothy Mulder, um, who was um, wanted for his robbery back in the day. So we went out, arrested Timothy Mulder, brought him in, questioned him. Of course, he denied everything, made up that he was, he was at work that day and you know, made up some story. Uh, and that, so we arrested him on the warrant for the original charge, but brought him to debate to interview him. And then he was turned over to the county, county jail to sit, to answer for that crime. In the meantime, we figured, well, they're going to hold him. We'll do our investigation. So we were obviously focusing in on him as well as other circumstances surrounding the victim and possible, uh, people that might be involved. We started getting phone records. Back in that day, it took a long time to get phone records. It would take weeks sometimes to get proper phone records. But as we got phone records come in, we realized that the call that was made to have um, the roofing victim come out to Bay Village was made from a phone number. We identified that phone number. It was a pay phone. We pulled the pay phone records. But what was interesting, if my recollection is correct, he there was a couple of calls to Western Roofing Answering Service to lure him out. In the middle of that call was a call to Timothy Mulder's home. So based upon that, you know, and we were waiting for Timothy Mulder's phone calls, we were able to put together this timeline. And one of the things I had done when the crime occurred was, and I had no idea this was going to have any value whatsoever, is I sent my guys out to, to collect any videotape of any surrounding store, you know, whether it be Gastown, Convenience, or whatever. And the reason I did that was I know that somebody came from out of this area to, to go do that. And if you're planning a crime like that, you don't arrive late, you arrive early. And if you arrive early, you're trying to kill time. Maybe you go into a store, maybe you do something like that. You're killing time, you're by, you're thirsty, you're nervous, whatever. That was my thought process. So sure enough, we had pulled tape from the speedway at Columbia and the railroad tracks. And as we're going through this whole thing, we're reviewing and reviewing. Well, maybe a week later or something, we're reviewing this one and we, sure enough, as we're reviewing the tape, there's Timothy Mulder at the gas town when he's supposed to be at work uh, asking for a phone book. So all these things just kept coming together, coming together, coming together. And we were able to put together a timeline through phone records and witness statements and his work that he was not at and all these things put together. Um, no forensic evidence whatsoever. Never found the gun. Uh, there was no DNA on his body because uh, all he did was hit him in the head and shoot him in the back of the head. There was no transfer of, of DNA uh, no vehicle left behind, and we were able to put together a circumstantial case. Um, he was found guilty, 
of capital murder. The jury deadlocked on, on the capital phase, so he was given life without parole. So that is an incredible case. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was an interesting case to work on. You know, again, you feel for the family. And we got, again, got very close with that family, good people. You know, we got very close with that family throughout the process. But, uh, you know, that was a tragedy. I mean, the killing of a witness is, you know, that's a pretty serious thing. And he, he executed him. There's no doubt. He lured him out to Bay Village with the intent of killing him. And that's what he did. Why did he pick Bay Village? We, we can only surmise, but he had to get him someplace where um, he knew he would go. So he chose a house on Lake Road, north side, very expensive home, probably a couple million dollar house. And we can only think that, you know, he was thinking, if I say I, I own this house on Lake Road and a tree, the story was a tree fell down, I need somebody to come out and look at my roof because I had this tree damage and it's, you know, the adverse weather. And so he wanted him to come out right away and look at it. And he figures, well, if it's a couple million dollar house, he'll probably come out in this bad weather and take a look at this because it's a potential, you know, lucrative job. So that's the only thing we can we can determine. So with that being said, and you guys, I mean, that's a lot of circumstantial evidence. So we're nowhere near that kind of circumstantial evidence. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, that's that's a crime, obviously, that occurred. And, you know, you're investigating immediately. And, again, we go back to phone records. That's a case where phone records solved it. Yeah, and it was only 11 years later. Yeah. Had it been, had this crime occurred 11 years later or today, uh, we would have those phone records that were used to call Amy at our house. Unbelievable. Yeah. So what would you have to say, or what do you have to say for... Have anything to say to the killer? Thirty years later. Well, I I don't know. I, I I know in my heart what I would talk to him about, and I want to share that part of it. But um, I got to believe, you know, I, I believe in the good in most people. There are certain people that have less of that certainly than others. But I think everybody has um, a, a guilt somewhere, and, and I think at, at the end of the day, we all want to absolve ourselves of that guilt in some way. And my hope is that that person will feel that way, whether they're there the end of their life or they just feel it's time and, you know, if they want to come forward, I'll, I'll have a chat with them. But you still believe this is a solvable case? Absolutely. I do. I do. And again, with, with the public's assistance, I believe we can solve this. Otherwise, why bother, right? I mean, you know, we're not just going to spin our, our wheels here. We feel it can be solved. That's why we've never put it on a shelf, never put it away. We continue to work it because I think any, almost anything can be solved. You just got to put forth the effort, and we've put forth the effort. So at some point, I think it's all going to come to fruition, and and, and I hope it's soon. I hope so too, mm-hmm. and I think that with uh, you know your pending retirement, and if you do potentially mm-hmm. end up helping the task force, I think that that would be invaluable, and I think that there would be a lot of people in the city that would be applauding that uh, I hope it works move. out yeah. and uh, you know I can't appreciate or I can't thank you enough for the amount of time that you've given me no problem. over the last year and uh, your openness and your candor has been mm-hmm. really cool and uh, appreciate that I feel thank like you. I've built like a nice friendship with you well so. thanks for thanks for keeping it out there again it's important for everybody to hear this and you know and again if they, they know of anything we want them to call us and, yeah you know, what's the phone number just call the regular Bayville's police line, 440-871-1234. Okay. And they'll be directed to a detective, or you can leave a message, and we'll get back with you. Yep. All right. All right. Thank All right. you. Thank you mm-hmm. very much. Sure. Thank you. 
Well, there you have it, folks. The conclusion to my 30-year sit-down with the chief of Bay Village Police, Mark Spetzel. Thank you so much to Chief Spetzel for his candor, his time, and willingness to meet with me over the past year. As you heard in this episode, there's a lot to look forward to if Chief Spetzel is brought on board after he steps down as chief to re-examine Amy's case. Many thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in this week. Without you, this show would not exist. If you'd like to know the latest on the cases I've covered, you can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. If you would like to help support this independently produced podcast, you can donate by clicking on the right-hand side of whokilledamymahalovic.com or via the Venmo app with my username at BillHuffman3. Any amount is appreciated, and it does help keep the recorders running. If you enjoy this podcast, you can also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will also help support the show and help keep Amy's story in the spotlight. You can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234 if you have any new information. The FBI is offering a reward of up to $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of Amy Renee Mahalovic. So anyone with information concerning this case, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next week, be safe. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do? If someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you, would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. <sighs>